Uh, we didn't like that at all on the one hand. On the other hand, yeah, Mansfield 103.2 was all over the world. <laughs> Well, it's not in the north And it's not in the south In fact, it's bang in the middle I said, hey, you Mansfield is a town in North Nottinghamshire Mansfield is a town in North Nottinghamshire Hello and welcome again to Mansfield is a Town in North Nottinghamshire, the podcast about Mansfield. That's Mansfield in North Nottinghamshire, of course, not one of the multitude of other and frankly less exciting Mansfields out there. Now, we're not talking about Mansfield in Texas, USA, for instance. There are important differences. In Mansfield, Texas, they're adjacent to large amounts of oil, whereas in Mansfield, Nottinghamshire, we have or we had lots of coal. Don't get the two mixed up. It's not good for your car. This episode is once again presented by me, Robert Shaw, and my mum. Say hello, mum. Actually, stop for a change. Let's pretend we're in Mansfield, Texas, and say, have a nice day instead. Say, have a nice day, mum. No. Oh, go on, for fun. We're pretending to be in America. I don't want to be in America. Okay, you love it in Mansfield uh, in uh, North Nottinghamshire, don't you? Fair enough. Say hello, mum. Hello, mum. Right. So this episode is about Mansfield and the media. We have an interview with Tony Delahunty, the managing director of Mansfield's brilliant radio station, Mansfield 103.2. Are you Radio Gaga, ma'am? I'm not asking you whether you're Gaga. Are you Radio Gaga? Sort of. When you were a babby girl in Plymouth, did you listen to the radio much? Did you and your many siblings gather in the front room to listen to the family set? Yes. Yes, we did. We used to listen to things like the Clitheroe Kid, Round the Horn, the Navy Lark, those sort of programmes. Oh, the Navy Lark. Sunday mornings. Okay. It was a bit saucy. Was it? Yes. Well, it was then. It wouldn't be now, but it was then. Go on, then give me an example. I can't remember. Some of the things that were said, they were sort of a bit, at the time, they would be saucy remarks. Can't remember them all. I just know that we enjoyed them at the time. A reference to knees, possibly. And your father, did he like the radio? He enjoyed listening to the uh, results from the uh, racing because he was a gambler and he used to put his money on. And we remember the one day when he sat listening to the radio and you could tell he was getting quite excited. I I think he'd put most of his money on it. And then it ended up by being photo finish. Uh-huh. Silence and, in the room, eh? Yes. And he was very excited then. But then when the photo finish wasn't in his favour, I think he wanted to commit suicide because I think he'd lost everything. Uh, that's good. That's good. It's good that he didn't. It's, it's, uh... It was very good he didn't. Otherwise, he couldn't have gone on his bus tours, could he? He went on bus tours. He went on bus tours because he used to like to go to race to race meetings, and he went to various uh, various meetings. I think at Ascot, Aintree, when anything was going off, and uh, they used to have the bus trips, 
And when he came home one day, he came home and he uh, he said, oh, good heavens above, I've left my wallet on the bus. So we said straight away, oh, that's that's wonderful. We'll, we'll go after it. It'll still be there. And uh, he said, no, 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 no. You, you mustn't do that because, you know, they want to be off. And we were laughing because we knew very well he hadn't lost his wallet. He'd just got no money left. He'd lost his money because he put it all he'd on a horse. He'd put his money on all the horses. And it was a good job his bus was paid for, otherwise he wouldn't have been able to come home. So, before Mansfield 103.2, though, we are going to talk about the North Not Set drama Sherwood, written by local boy James Graham, which has been a hit on BBC One and has put the 1980s miners' strike front and centre again of the national consciousness. You saw some of this, didn't you, Mum? Yes. You were a bit confused, though, when they started playing tennis, weren't you? Well, yes, because I didn't know what tennis was then. Yes, that's right. I mean, uh, just to explain, that's because they moved the programme from BBC One to BBC Two one night because Wimbledon overran and, um, and you didn't switch over, did you, Mum? Anyway, first of all, architectural historian and expert TV viewer and analyst Lucy Brower watched um, Sherwood for us and the following interview with Lucy inevitably contains a few spoilers if you haven't watched it yet. The things you need to know going into Sherwood are that the, the writer James Graham who has done a lot of other work uh, recently, uh, things like quiz, a lot of plays uh, with political content, quite up to date. He likes to base things on real life events. He actually grew up in Annesley Woodhouse, I, I believe, or in the area at least for some of his uh, youth. And so I think he wanted to come back uh, to his origins and explore a story that took place there. But the programme was quite clear that it was a fictionalisation of uh, what had actually happened. And this, if, you've, if you'd read about the actual crimes that took place in, I think it was 2004, uh, there's quite a lot of difference between what happened there and what happens in the drama. When does it take place? The, uh, the, the, the drama... <laughs> which I found quite confusing at first because I had in my mind, oh, it's 2004. And also there's a lot of flashbacks to 1984 and a lot of people talking about 30 years ago when this happened. But it took me most of the first episode to figure out it was taking place in the present day. And I, I need to sort of go back and, and, and check why I didn't clock that straight away, whether it's because everyone's fashion is slightly out of date, I don't know, uh, but, things like mobile phones figure quite heavily and technology figures quite, figures quite heavily in plot. So it becomes clear eventually that we are in the present day and he has played with the timeline considerably as well as playing with the actual facts of what happened. So as you say, we're in the present day. Um, it's, a, it's, a crime, uh, it's a crime drama, but it's not a procedural, is it? Uh, I think James Graham was very clear in saying it's not about who the killer is, so he does kind of tell you quite early on. Yeah, you do find out who the killers are quite early on, and it's, it's almost... Um, the, the skill in it is keeping the tension going and keeping the drama going and keeping the thrills... Uh, in place, even when you know who's, who's, who, who the murderers are. The way it unfolded was over two nights, two episodes, and then the following week, two episodes, and then the third week, two episodes. So the structure was to keep you interested rather than letting you binge the whole six hours in one sitting. 
and it worked really well because it was it was full of cliffhangers and it was full of shocks and and things to keep you really going oh wow I didn't expect that or oh it's actually them or even though you knew who the killers were so the skill in the drama was was that really I think and then a deeper layer was to to use it to demonstrate a lot of the social and political tension that obviously continue to uh, happen around uh, both the miners' strike, the relationships in the community, which is, is was quite strong. The idea that there was this community that all knew each other and that outsiders came into that and how that uh, made them interact was sort of central to what was going on. Because what, what are the divisions within the community then? There are sort of three tribes, aren't there, really, in a way? There were the two miners' unions. So there's a lot of a reference to the fact that uh, a lot of the Nottinghamshire miners actually went to work during the strike. And then there were the NUM miners who were on strike. And this seems to continue to be a tension even over 30 years later within this community, uh, which is quite a small community. But... Um, and obviously the pits are now closed. So the fact that this, this tension carries on throughout is, is, is a really central part of, of how it's organised and how the characters react to each other. Because just before the first guy gets off, and I think we can say this is in, it's in the first episode, isn't yeah. it? I, th- I think, I think you, you know there are going to be some murders. I think you can go somebody, into it knowing that without spoiling anything. He says to somebody at the bar, scab. And, yeah. and and so, you know, he's a, a loyal NUM striker. The other person hasn't gone out on strike. And so we're, we're sort of given to understand that maybe this happened because of that division. And then the other tribe here is obviously the police. Yes. Also, um, Who uh, also have divisions because you've got the local Nottinghamshire police who are part of the community or were initially part of the community, although he's got a very, very nice house. I'm not sure he's actually living in the same village. Yeah, though, his, but, yeah. his, that's Morrissey, isn't it? That's, David, David Morrissey, the sort David of main Morrissey. Knotts police character, anyway, uh, was involved in the strike as a young officer and has come back as the investigating officer of the murders. And then um, through various plot devices, a uh, Met Police officer from London comes up to become involved in the case. And it turns out that he was also there during the strike. And this sort of secondary story of what had happened for uh, 30 odd years before starts to unfold and starts to sort of pick apart the relationships that uh, happened earlier and are still having repercussions in the present day. Now you mentioned how nice David Morrissey's house is. And I was going to say that there are certainly bits in, in where, you know, at the beginning I thought, oh, it's a bit sort of D.H. Lawrence because in the interiors where the old mining families are speaking to one another, they sound a bit Laurentian. It's a There's bit... an element of that. Yeah, you can't get away from, from Bert, really, can you? No. Ah, you know, the... the the paint on the walls looks quite farrow and ball. And, you know, there's, there's a, you know, actually, I mean, I, I must say it's beautifully filmed. It makes um, Nottinghamshire look really lush and very attractive as a landscape. And yes. then the other thing is it also, I mean, it, it does also, I mean, I, I think there's an element of kind of, yeah, Nottinghamshire miners didn't go on strike and actually they live in quite nice houses for all of them. It was a bit midsummer murders at times. I I think it's quite difficult to shoot drama in actual small terrace houses. So that probably opened it up. Uh, A friend of mine was watching very, very closely and looked up the street names because she knew uh, Newstead and Annesley quite well and was like, everything in Newstead and Annesley is called Byron Street and 
Charworth Musters Road. So she looked them up and actually the street shots, for the most part, uh, were in Yorkshire somewhere, I think. The Yorkshire Tourist Board have got a great deal with filmmakers at the moment, so I think that that happened. But the wider shots and the aerial shots and the forest seem to be local to the area that they're actually talking about, although they've played a little bit fast and loose with the geography of the place, which inevitably happens in filmmaking. You can't, you're not making a documentary, so you can you can use what, what works. Uh, but there were moments where you thought, yeah, we are in, you know, the back-to-backs and we are in a small village and, and that is bordered by woods because it is kind of, Newstead and Annesley, I catch the bus through that way quite a lot, and they are kind of slightly off the main track. You would be able to go and hide out in the woods around there. They're kind of enclosed uh, by the landscape in a particular sort of way. They're on the other side of Newstead Abbey Park, which is quite a big area with, with not so many houses in it. So there is an element of, you know, there is a, a, a you, you have to kind of believe that someone could hide out there for that long that because it is a long manhunt and, and you start, the people, even in the drama, were saying, how, how can he still be in there, you know? And there is an element that you could you could hide there, I think. There were also a few bits at Newstead Abbey, weren't there as well? <laughs> it's turning into Downton all of a sudden. Well, you've got, I mean, Newstead, the camera does love Newstead. So, you know, it did work quite well. Although I, you know... I, I know some of those peacocks and that was quite upsetting. And um, when they did take their takeaway coffees into the main hall and not use coasters, I got very upset. To clarify, why, why were the, uh, um, why was it upsetting with the, with the birds? Well, the um, murderer on the loose in the forest has got a crossbow and this is his main sort of weapon and it's quite threatening. And I think in a little nod to our favorite outlaw, he had his hood up for a lot of the time. And in several episodes, there were instances where he shot at people. Uh, and uh, uh, one episode, I think, it opened with uh, the peacock uh, taking an arrow, which yeah. was, uh, uh, you mustn't shoot animals in British drama. It always upsets the audience. So there was a, a beautiful, lush shot of the outside of Newstead Abbey, but unfortunately a peacock uh, being one of the victims. Did you think it sold um, the area? I, I don't know. I, that's a tricky one. I'm not sure that it did set out to be the midsummer of Nottingham in quite the way that you're maybe imagining there. But um, I think it, it's difficult. It, it felt set in one place. It definitely felt of a place. But I think if you know that place, you're going to react to it differently to someone watching it from the outside. I think there was a lot of comments from the characters, particularly about we're neither one thing nor the other. We're not the North. I mean, I know this is a, this, we're singing your song here, but um, it's not in the North and it isn't, you know, who are we and, and what are we for? And why do we, there was a great speech towards the end, basically saying, why are we talking about something we're not anymore? You know, why can't we move on from this? Which is, which is a thought I think a lot of people around here have had who were maybe a bit younger than the strike. And um, it does become, maybe, I think he was highlighting that, it has become this, this point that people just can't let go of. So the spy cop strand, it's based on five romantic poets. So at one point I was absolutely convinced that Keats had done it, really. So they're called Wordsworth, Coleridge, Byron, Blake and Keats. Um, now there is interesting because Blake yeah. isn't really a romantic. Blake's not poet. technically mm, part of that romantic. crew, is he? It's I don't think so. Shelley. I mean, they should have had Shelley, I think. Yeah. So, so I thought, is Shelley going to appear at some point? <laughs> there were so many levels, you see, that you could sort of go off down the rabbit hole of that bit of the plot 
And in the end, I think it came down to, I think that one of the reasons why phones were figured so heavily in it, and it had to be in the present day, there were certain things to do with typing words that come up as other words in a spell check. And that almost was like the, the gag that at the end. And it was almost like he's been saving this gag, uh, you know, this joke to kind of be the, be some, be the climax of, of this bit of drama. And, and uh, that, I don't know that it, I think it's all part of misdirection to get you thinking about, oh, well, it must be Byron because we're in Newstead or it must be Blake because he's the odd one out or, or that sort of thing. And it did mean that you got these little guest spots from really well-known actors. And this happens throughout. They're in it for five minutes. Yeah. So who's in there? Tell us. Uh, oh, there's, there's some quite big. If you watch a lot of TV drama, you recognise at least, even if you don't know the names, like my dad will go, it's what's it from thingy? What was he in before? We spent a lot of time talking through that. People like Stephen Tomkinson pops up as a Yorkshire miner very, very briefly, but effectively. Grown his hair out, I never saw him. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they had to look a bit like their counterparts in 1984. And that did get kind of confusing because all the policemen looked really alike. <laughs> there was that joke of oh, the policemen are getting younger, or they, they sort of did, literally, which was quite hard to follow. And there's Leslie Manville, of course. Yeah, oh, great actress. Really, in a way, is somebody who can underplay it, but comes across very emotional. She had a lot of emotion to deal with being the widow of the victim and having all this complex family relationship with other characters. And I think uh, the, the relationship between her and her sister, uh, which is, is meant to be quite fraught, uh, worked quite well and was kind of right at the centre of, of, of how this community had been split up. So she handled that really well. Um, you've got David Morrissey playing the main policeman. He's always quite a solid presence in things like this. I always imagine him as being like quite an angry bear who's just been woken up from a deep sleep because he's got that sort of deep growly voice. Uh, we could get into who managed to do the Knots accent. I was going to say, who did the Knots accent? Who did the Knots accent? It's tricky because you, I, I could find myself going, well, he's actually from Retford, so he sort of got there, which is, is the chap who was playing, um, is it Philip Jackson, who was playing the uh, Sparrow, Mr Sparrow, who was sort of the, kind of the baddie of the piece. He was a bit morally dubious. Um, there was uh, Lorraine Ashbourne, who's actually, I think, from Lancashire, although that kind of figured that she wasn't local. Mm. Um, what else? Uh, a lot of the younger characters were definitely locals because they kind of were able to say, hey, up me up, without sounding like they were mastering Shakespeare in a way. And I, I, you kind of caught that, that the, the, the children and that the younger characters certainly felt local. There's reference to the UDM, uh, which is the... Uh, breakaway miners union during the strike um, representing people who didn't go on strike and how well do you think it covered that whole issue about you know why there was a division within the mining I mean you know what what that political moment was and why some people decided to strike and some people decided not to strike did it in in the last episode there was a community meeting where all the characters sort of came together as the murder was resolved and and they sort of said well, we want to deal with the trauma of this happening in the village and there were several speeches made by the characters from either side of that split that in a way if you came to it without understanding that dispute after that you could understand it in terms of why some of them had gone back to work 
some of them had clung to this other principle of, of you know, fighting it. And, and I think that, that the, the character who'd, who'd carried on working was trying to say, we knew it was going to be over soon, so we had to, you know, make as much money as we could while it was still happening. And then the, the impression was that those on the other side of the argument, on the NUM side, thought that maybe mining would continue when they went back to it. And, and there was this moment, and this is sort of when another character says, well, it's all gone now. Why are we still representing ourselves with this thing that we aren't anymore? You know, we're post-industrial. Why? Why are we wedded to this thing that has gone? You know, so there is there is an element of that, and that is is very deeply ingrained in the identity of, of both sides around here, you know, and other people who weren't minors. You know, it, it's very, very much how this area is is sort of characterized quite a lot of the time as post-industrial post-mining you know ex-mining James Graham has sort of said he doesn't want it to be a polemic he doesn't want it to be a political drama but I think he's sort of excusing the fact that it is quite a political drama and he has made some quite you know strong points that you should go away and think about and compare to the current situation in the country you know he's sort of he's sort of gone oh I'm not trying to be political but at the same time, I think you can't help but be political once you start talking about, you know, that kind of thing and industrial disputes and, and how the country is run and, and things like that. And there are a lot of parallels. James Graham is well known for being very even handed. He is. This is this is the thing. It was quite even handed between the sides of the community. The police sort of uh, viewpoint was quite well explored, I thought, to and, and even the divisions within the police, between the different forces, that they, they kind of broke that down to be more of a personal story. So he, he does give everyone their say. And he isn't trying to say this is good, this is bad. It's not as black and white as that. I think he's, he, he presents what he has discovered in a way and what the characters have discovered. And it isn't kind of foisted on top of the drama. It is central to what's making the drama work in a way. There's going to be another season isn't this is what was announced right at the very end over the closing credits and i was quite surprised because it did feel as if most of the threads had been uh, pulled together but i mean you could run with it i mean there was certainly a little bit more life in the spy plot there were a couple of characters still kind of on the loose uh whether in actuality or just in plot terms there were the relationships between the characters I mean, I'd quite like the spin-off with Le- Leslie Manville and David Morrissey, maybe just fighting crimes in a small village. I don't know. I think that might work. That was Lucy Brower. I wonder what your dad would have made of Sherwood, Mum. He died before the 1980s miners' strike, of course, but what were his politics? There was strong Labour, but he did become a communist for a while. Did he? That was after the Second World War, was it? Yes, it was. And did he remain a communist for long? No, he didn't. Because you know of the incident. I do. This was in the, yeah. this was in the Chinese Civil War, I think. Yeah. And it was an incident between the Kuomintang nationalists and uh, the Communist People's Liberation Army. And they, uh, the communists fired on a, on a British boat, I think. Yes. And there were some very young sailors on it. And they all died. There was a lot of under 18s, and it caused a lot of hurt. So my father thought he didn't want to belong to anything. And of course, 
this upset my father and he so suddenly he didn't want to know and he dropped the communist party and became a very strong labor man tore up his card very good right back to the wireless did you know that when bbc radio took to the airwaves exactly 100 years ago it started out as a local broadcaster it was only when the longwave transmitter at daventry in the east midlands came into service a few years later that the national network was established but in truth, local radio only really took root in the 1960s when the BBC, which still had a monopoly on radio broadcasting in the UK, launched a series of local stations under pressure from commercial and so-called pirate stations, such as Radio Luxembourg and Radio Caroline. Radio Leicester was the first, launching in November 1967 with speeches from the Postmaster General and the city's mayor. Things have loosened up considerably since, of course. Ceremonial mayors no longer get to do the introductions, stations have proliferated, and the BBC's monopoly is long gone. But there are fewer genuinely local and independent radio broadcasters out there than you might imagine. But Mansfield 103.2, founded in 1999, is just such a marvel, making programmes about local issues, sport, culture, business, as well as spinning great tunes. I talked to the station's MD, Tony Delahunty, about the challenges and pleasures of running Mansfield 103.2. And I asked him what he did before joining the station around the time of its launch on the cusp of the new millennium. I've been around, I'm ex-Navy. Um, I was a midshipman in the Navy, went on to be an, a, a navigation officer in the Navy, and then I went into a, a, a specialised unit that, that I worked in there doing all sorts of weird things, a, a job I got because I was small. <laughs> and get into places that perhaps other people couldn't get into easily. Uh, then I came ashore. I was involved in the, the legal profession for a number of years. And it was at that time I started broadcasting as a, as a freelance broadcaster for the local rugby club. Eventually I started doing things for local radio. And uh, after a brief spell with, as a freelance with the BBC, went to Pennine Radio in Bradford. Uh, I was very lucky. Uh, I was nominated as sports broadcaster of the year and won programming awards there uh, when there was only about 80 stations going then but it was still great for me and I was supported by some magnificent young people who taught me my job much younger than me and they were brilliant and then of course there was the Bradford fire which was a, a terrible disaster I was a commentator at that which made me famous for all the wrong reasons of being in, in, in that uh, that particular fire uh, it, that caused me to, to, to look to work further afield because my voice was alarming people every time I shouted for a corner. Um, it sounded like there was something going wrong. Uh, when the job came up to be the first regional sports editor of the Radio Trent Group, I applied for that. Uh, by accident, met Brian Clough. Uh, Brian Clough, effectively, it's a long story, I won't bore you with it, um, helped me get the job at the radio strength. He didn't mean to, but he did, because I did an interview with him on the day of the interview, and Radio Strength heard it and thought, well, they, they'll, they'll get this old codger who was not that young even then. So I came to Radio Strength, worked there. That took me around the world after that. Worked for an international radio, international television, uh, and then came to watch my son go motor racing. That worked really well for a couple of years, and then unfortunately, well, for several years, then unfortunately it didn't. Uh, and I came back into, into radio. Uh, I, I was brought in as a, a, a sort of lifeguard to Mansfield 103.2, not because I was particularly good at doing my job, but more because I'd done an awful lot of it and eventually ended up as uh, first manager, then managing director, and probably one of the oldest reporters in the universe now. On FM, online. 
and on smart speaker. I got a call uh, from Ron Coles, who now works for me, who'd been my boss twice for two different radio station groups. And he said, uh, would I be interested in having a chat with one of the directors of what was Mansfield Nashville Broadcasting Company Limited? And I said, well, I've wasted so much money on motorsport that I would have a, have a chat. I went and uh, met the, uh, uh, the, the person who was going to be manager at the time who came from, would you believe, Hull. Um, and she told me an amazing story how she'd come for a job with the then board of Mansfield 103.2. And uh, she'd come for the job as a sales manager and she'd gone away. And when they gave her the job, they said that she was manager of the entire station outputs and she didn't really know what to do next. Uh, and in fairness to her, she probably was a very good salesperson, but had no experience of managing at all. And it has to be said also that although I was a, uh, uh, a sports editor, and I've been a news editor. I had no uh, no <laughs> no thoughts of managing a radio station whatsoever. So I was asked if I, I would join. I did. Former director of BBC Radio Nottingham was on the board at the same time, uh, and I, I had a meeting with them. And I came aboard as a sort of Trojan horse because all the staff, virtually all the staff, were coming in from Hull from a a station where they had either worked at or worked before at Viking Radio. So there was very few people from, from Mansfield that were involved at all. And I wasn't from Mansfield. I was from Nottingham. But since then, do you think you've become Mansfield? Oh, it had to, because after a, a, a few weeks um, of struggling to get on air, we weren't ready to go on air when I joined them. And it wasn't me that put it right. I mean, the various people worked very hard. And it became obvious that what we really should have were people from the area. And as those that, uh, that left... Uh, and they did leave. The uh, program controller went to to London. The the manager I I, I mentioned, very nice lady from from Hull, uh, decided that uh, she had enough of uh, doing a job that she wasn't really uh, wanting to do, uh, and she was travelling all the way from Hull each day. Well, they left. Various members of the sales force left at the same time, and then thank goodness we got local people involved. I'd been in Nottingham for quite a long time, in fairness. Um, and we got local people involved. And when we got people from this area with the same sort of grit that comes from their forefathers working down the pits and that type of thing, we started to move forward, but it wasn't easy. I'm lucky enough that it, within my staff, I have people who uh, are far too talented for a local radio station of our size. Uh, our programme director, Ian Watkins, our, our, our sports editor, and the now... Uh, presenter of the morning show, uh, Jason Harrison, both could have moved on into national radio years ago without any problem at all, or national television for that matter. But because the industry has uh, become majorly part of various groups of radio stations where the, the guy might be doing the, the afternoon programme and sounding or trying to sound like he's in Mansfield, but as an actual fact he's broadcasting from London or Birmingham or whatever, um, we're not like that. We've been able to try and keep it within ourselves because we're a wholly owned station. We're not part of a group of radio stations. We are Mansfield. Your presenter in the morning, JB Tannen, is, uh, works from Man Mansfield, lives in Mansfield. Uh, Ian Watkins is exactly the same situation. 
uh, Jason Harrison, Warsop, and, and Katie Trinder, of course, born and bred Sutton in Ashfield. I mean, we, all our presenters now come from this area and were born and bred in this area. Only one who doesn't, by the way, is the one you're talking to. He's a scouser. <laughs> and you, you really wanted to be off watching motor racing. Rather than uh, that's when I first uh, came there. I was, um, in fact, my my son who uh, won the the national championship in in kart racing uh, ahead of Lewis Hamilton. I have to say, although Lewis was a little bit younger, um, he actually joined the station as a sales manager. We were desperate for staff early doors uh, and the right staff, uh, and then he presented the breakfast program. He's He's uh, no longer with us. He's moved off into another industry. And we've had some great people from this area that have gone on into international radio or, or television. Uh, Katie Trinder, who's back with us now, because she's back in the area, bless her for coming back. She worked for BBC World Services. Adam Summerton is one of the top commentators with BT Sport on, on television. And there are many others that have done really, really well that came out of Mansfield. But the hardcore of them remain here. I am so lucky to work with people who are far more talented than me. So, paint me a picture. Where are you sitting now? In my garage. <laughs> yeah. it, it wasn't funny at the time. Um, when COVID hit, in fairness, because we have to keep within the confines of the revenue that we get, I had done the weekends, the news and sport uh, for the news and the sports news uh, for a number of years now. Uh, and when COVID hit, the space I had in my shared stroke garage was a space where I could do a, a limited amount of broadcasting. And I had microphone here, I had ear headphones, I had some, uh, some equipment for uh, editing. Uh, and when COVID came and it was become working from home, the news was supplied from here. So. Ian Watkins and Graham Collis and uh, Matt Duffel, who was with us earlier at the time, had designed the studio. And the shed became a garage. The garage became a studio. And that's where you're talking to me now. And do they all come to your garage then to do the uh, broadcasting as well? No, just like we're doing it now, uh, not during lockdown, of course, we couldn't do that. Although there was one incredible interview where I dangled the telephone uh, out, out of the window down to somebody who was on my drive. Um, and he got hold of the, 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 uh, the telephone and pulled the thing off the socket. So that was a pointless exercise. Most of the interviews were, were, were done on the phone. Uh, or transferred in by email. And I was lucky, you know, we're a staff that work together. Uh, people on my staff can do every single job, including mine. So, uh, you know, what happened really was we just sort of worked around every corner. Um, and, and it was great because also the populace of Mansfield, Astral and Bolsover, they rang in regularly. I did regular radio interviews. We even did programmes. We do programmes now which uh, are out of the garage. I've heard of... <laughs> Garage music. I've never heard of garage talk radio for the talk bits that I do before. Tony, tell me this. How easy is it to be an independent radio station now? Because there are um, groups, aren't there? Uh, sort of Bauer and, you know, that, that, that bring together all of the, the services and I think they do sort of advertising together as well, don't they? That sort of... Yeah, let, let's split it down a little bit. Uh, it's changed. Uh, 
at one stage, and, and if you think the the education process towards working in radio has changed as well. I'm very old, and when I came in, into radio, and I was a little bit uh, behind the eight ball when, when I came in, not much. Uh, there weren't many radio stations. And the universities and colleges got the idea that rather than uh, have a, an advert of somebody in a, a, a boiler suit with oil over, over it and oil on the face, holding a spanner, uh, to go into engineering, wouldn't it be rather nice for pretty girls to think that they were reading the news, for good-looking blokes to think the same? Uh, and they started media courses everywhere. So everywhere was doing media courses. Everybody wanted to be a broadcast journalism, uh, and, and colleges brought people in all over the place. And in fairness, more radio stations were coming online, more cables were coming online, cable TV and that type of thing. So there was going to be loads and loads of jobs. Everybody was happy. But then, you know, you found out that local radio began to say, well, we do one thing, you do another, why can't we group up? So instead of two sets of jobs, there became one or one and a half at best. And then 10 stations might have grouped together. And instead of uh, 10 breakfast presenters and 10 producers, you only needed maybe one in the morning and one producer. Hey, where did the others go? You know, where did the other 18 go? The jobs weren't there. If we uh, put an advert on Mansfield 103.2 for staff now, if we did, we tend to recruit locally and from people who've done work experience with us. So we know what they're like. But if we put an advert in, Ian Watkins will tell you, you can get 100 applications for one job from all over the country because there aren't the jobs there because of the combining of things. And some of the smaller stations like us uh, have handed their license back or whatever, and others are all in groups. So the, the program isn't even coming from the area that they're actually in, although the advertising and the sales department may still be selling into it. It's not a cheat or anything like that. It's just the way that radio's gone. We are totally multilateral and balls over. The staff work here. Everybody here on the airways is broadcasting in this area and is from this area now. And how many people are involved actually in the running in Mansfield? Well, including freelancers at any one time. Now, when I first started, I'll give you an example. Uh, there was five in the newsroom, and uh, I was the head of news and sport when I first started. Uh, they moved me up uh, to being the, uh, uh, the manager and then the managing director, which was like giving a monkey a machete, but, uh, because I'd never done anything like that before. And somehow or other, uh, I, I survived with some really, really good advice coming in from the likes of Ron Coles, who is, still does a programme for us, although he's actually uh, retired now. So I had a mentor to help me in the early days and still have if I needed, uh, needed some advice. And that's, that's really great to have somebody being able to, uh, to look at you and bounce a ball against the wall, as I do with all our line managers. They, they know far more than me about the areas that they're involved in, and that's great. But uh, it, it was tough going in, in, in those early days, and it's got better as it, it's gone along. I actually think that, uh, that our broadcast now is as good as, as any stations do anywhere, but uh, we're not subject to the same sort of difficulties of locality, and our unique selling point is, hey, we're here, we're for you. And for that goes for not just the uh, people who are listening, it goes for the advertisers as well. We don't get any license fees or anything like that. We depend entirely on the money that comes in. And we've got the best advertisers in the world. And we virtually have had that since day one. Yeah. And this, so 
as I said, we, you, know, you launched in 1999, eventually after a, a long process. Here you are in 2022. You got through lockdown where yeah, everybody had to flee to their sheds to, to broadcast. What does, uh, what does the future look like for, for an independent radio station? For an independent radio station or for Mansfield 103.2, well, or for those, or for those that might work at them, which I mean, you can split that up, Rob, in in so many ways. I'll tell you what the future in my heart is, uh, and it may be slightly different from what it has to be in my head. First of all, independent stations vary in size. There's the very big ones, you know, the likes of Talk Radio, uh, some of the groups that. Capital Radio now, some of the stations where I used to work at Radio Trent. Where's that gone now? Well, it's Capital, it's one of the Capital stations now. Nothing wrong with that. That's good accounting. The accountants have looked at it, decided the best way to do it. You mentioned the Bauer Group. We do some work with the Bauer Group. We're not owned by the Bauer Group. We're owned by three directors, one of which is a guy talking to at the moment. So on the one hand, there's the big groups where quite often the main station is supporting a lot of smaller stations although revenue comes in from them but it's the output that matters we think our output is excellent our uh, our direct opposition in this area is really the bbc uh, they have far more staff um, i would argue wouldn't i that they have far too many staff and far too many advantages but you know there are colleagues, the BBC, and I know some great journalists that work both locally and nationally. And uh, I know some good local ones that really should work nationally as well. They do a job. We do a different job. We're for a different audience, perhaps a, a more musically inclined audience than the, the B-Bar locally. And some of the other commercial stations, when we first came along, we had an enormous uh, audience reach. There was only two or three stations in competition. There's far more stations now in competition with us competition in commercial radio means competition not only on the listening audience which is very very important but it's that there's a pool of money available in Bas mansfield Ashfield, and Bolsover. The, the very excellent newspaper the chad uh, the, the uh, good news journal the news journal of, of stuart ricasey they have to dip their beak in the pond we have to dip their beak, our beak in the pond and there's a lots of other uh, commercial stations or whatever tv and otherwise dipping their beak in the pond. There's only so much in that pond. Uh, we perhaps need less than some of them to survive. We're surviving well. We're making a profit, although we didn't through a period of time inside COVID. But that was the only time in the last 17 years that this small station hasn't made something of a profit for its owners. And the future of us is unique selling point has got to be local, local, local. This season we've covered every single match of Mansfield Town with commentary. We're in uh, 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 an interesting situation there. Very sadly, Mansfield Town didn't go up. And, and now, of course, we have to look at our situation for the next season as well. They, they have their, their own methods of getting stuff out. They have an excellent uh, TV channel for I follow. It will depend on what others may want to do in the coverage of the chance. And, and if we're all fighting the same pool of listeners now that's another thing a uh, same pool of listeners 
we've got to be aware that we've got to deliver to our advertisers as well a decent sized audience and that makes this the decision making of what programs we put out very important indeed because no advertiser wants to put their products out when no one's listening to find out how good it is so we have a lot of decisions to make in the future it's a changing world is the local radio it's a changing world for employment it's a changing world for the way we look forward but i think we've got a few years yet at least and we may start to diversify there's uh, thoughts around the board table of possibly extending there are other areas other stations that aren't too far away that uh, well we can service very well indeed and of course i've got the right lieutenants <laughs> my lieutenants uh, would have no problem whatsoever in expanding because they can all do my job as well as their own on fm online and on smart speaker We've got to look forward to what we can deliver for a community. I want to hear more voices. I want to hear more voices on the news from people in the area, from telling stories and that sort of thing. It's very easy just to bang another record on. Yeah, we've got to do a little bit more than that. And uh, our programme controller in Watkins, uh, Jason Harrison, who leads the, the, the sport so, so well, uh, they're conscious that we want to stay more and more in the community. We cover more local cricket, local soccer, uh, all different types of, of, of local sport. We want to hear more from people on the sporting side and more from people on the drama side. We've got uh, a programme now which is designed entirely for entertainment. We have another one for business. They go out at key times so they don't affect the music earlier in the day. And we have a sports show that goes out on a Friday night. Uh, there's not many stations of our size can do that. And how does that work? Because each of us know each other. Each of us know the strong, our strengths. And in my case, some of my weaknesses and combining that together it helps us work and the one thing we do know we're all from the same team and and that's so important i'm not dealing down a long distance line somewhere from somebody in london or birmingham or leeds i'm dealing mansfield i'm dealing Ashfield, i'm dealing balls over so what sort of feedback do you get from listeners how how does it come in people email people people come and knock on your door they attack your garage or <laughs> no one's attacked the garage yet. <laughs> I wish they would have done early doors. I mean, they, they attacked it with a pot of paint and, and something to cure the leaks because there were leaks early doors. I remember doing one news bulletin where a drip of water came down my neck right in the middle. And I, I sort of, I think people must have wondered what on earth was happening because I, I tried to move out of the way, knock the microphone over, the headphones fell off. And goodness knows what else. Yeah, it's it, it, the, the listeners do contact us. JB Tannen in the morning, his producers are absolutely <laughs> one hand, one phone, the other hand, another phone. And, and what pro is, is, is the same? Katie Trinder, every dog lover in the, the area loves Katie Trinder, and Katie Trinder loves dogs. She's got about seven or eight. People constantly send me notes about rock. John Coles' great programme, rock and roll programme that goes out. We've had the, the greatest commentary team in the world, in my view, for local radio this year, organised by Jason Harrison and Ian Watkins, Craig Priest and uh, former Stag Lee Wilson. It's been riveting, riveting stuff from them. Local radio at its very, very best. So you're the Andy of, uh, of the station. You do also, as you sort of alluded to there you know you do quite a bit of broadcasting you do the sports program on um, Friday evening and uh, you know you're you're a very busy 
always doing the research for that as well. But I mean, actually, how many hours a week are you putting into this station? At the moment, oh, this, this is going to sound ridiculous. I'm seven day a week, um, as are my, my colleagues. It's not just about the money they earn uh, or anything like that. It's about a dedication to what we do. In my case, I'm a lot older than them. It's a reason to get up in the morning. I do the news seven days a week. That's morning news, afternoon news. If there's a night football match or a sporting occasion, I have to work until pretty late. So sometimes I get up at six in the morning because I want to. So that's the important thing, Rob, because I want to. I want to play my part in the team. I'm not as fast as the rest of them now. I do, in fact, three shows. I do the entertainment show with the brilliant Katie Trinder. I do the business show, which is superb, and, and often get help from one of or two of our sales, or three of our sales force, who are constantly looking for stories for me. And again, we break in with, we, we have the ability, you know, if television often needs to set its cameras up and that sort of thing. We have the, the ability, if something suddenly happens in Mansfield, during the daytime hours particularly, I can be on air within seconds. And that's the important. The first, it's like the first bit of history of something that well, it can often be a sad thing that happens can be on radio very, very quickly. Radio is a wonderful industry. It's changed an awful lot, but it's a wonderful industry, except, and you haven't asked me about this, but I bet you're going to, except when we get hacked and we have a, a guy singing the Winker song, and you can change the letter in that, uh, because that, that happened a few years ago. <laughs> we were so popular that somebody who needed to scan and get on our radio station managed to take our name around the world. There were people in Australia, newspapers and TV in Australia bringing me up for interviews about why somebody was singing the Winker or whatever you, you want to interpret that, uh, that song as on the airwaves. Uh, we didn't like that at all, on the one hand. On the other hand, yeah, Mansfield 103.2 was all over the world. That was Tony Delahunty of Mansfield 103.2. Mum, are you winking at me? No, I'm not. I was scratching my eye. All right. You never hacked a radio station, have you? No, but I could. Right. In time-honoured fashion, we're going to end with you singing the jingle. But this time, you're not going to sing ours, you're going to sing Mansfield 103.2s. Are you ready? I know it's going to be so good that Tony Delahunty will be desperate for the rights to use it on the station. Tony, I'll be waiting for your call. Five, four, three, two, one, off you go, Mum. Mansfield, CO 1.2, is that good? <laughs> Yeah.